I just want you to know that as I come to this text in Colossians this morning, I come knowing that what Paul is calling for is something that the Spirit has to empower in all of us as we put on Christ in every sphere of our life and influence. And um, Paul says some hard things in the commands he gives us this morning. And I say they're hard. They're hard because my flesh and your flesh wants to fight against it. It is a struggle for us all. So understand my heart before I deliver hard words as I preach to you this morning. And I do believe that hard words create soft hearts. And I believe that the Spirit of God will bless the hard truth this morning and cultivate a soft-hearted people through the proclamation of his word. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you through the merits of Christ, our Redeemer, our Reconciler, our Substitute. And, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the words of life that we have that will guide us as we dwell upon Christ and we let the peace of Christ rule in our minds and our hearts. Lord, I pray that the fruit of our dwelling on your word would be a transformation in our lives and in our society. God, I pray that the fruit of the Christian, as they feed on Christ in the word, I believe, God, and I pray that that fruit will bless our children, bless our marriages, and bless our vocations in life. And ultimately glorify Christ, which is our desire this morning. Lord, I pray in all the spheres of life that you place us in, all the areas that we have influence in, that you would magnify Jesus by, by helping us to put on Christ-like qualities this morning as we submit to your directions and we walk in your truth. Let us show the world Christ in every area of our life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, please open God's word with me to Colossians 3, verse 15 this morning. And I will be reading down to verse 1 of chapter 4. And hear the word of the Lord in Colossians to us this morning. Verse 15. And, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, wives, Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In this text that we're reading this morning, the Apostle Paul is reminding us that we need to put on Christ-exalting qualities in every relationship in life, in our family relationships, and in our public witness. He says in verse 17, whatever you do, and in the Greek, that word whatever means whatever. That's what it means. You are to magnify Christ in your role as a wife, your role as a husband, your role as a child, your role as a father, your role as an employee or a slave, and your role as an employer, a master. And all these relationships, we need to put on Christ-exalting qualities. This is extremely practical teaching this morning. I think it's that way because God intends for Christians to make an extremely deep impact in every sphere of society. Society can't deny the lordship of Christ because we live in it. We exhibit it and we display it joyfully. And what I think we need to remember this morning is this, is when, when society sees what we see here in this text lived out, Christ is magnified. The supremacy of Christ is put on display through the lives of the church being lived out in this society. When society sees wives joyfully submit to their husbands, these wives are testifying to the lordship of Christ in their hearts. That's who they ultimately submit to. It's Christ. And the man that, they, that Christ has given to them to watch over them, they joyfully submit to him as a gift from Christ himself. And, and when, when, society, when society sees husbands sacrificially love their wives, the husbands testify to the world that Christ's love is at work in their actions. And when society sees children trusting and obeying their parents' direction, actually it's the parents who are testifying to something here. The parents are testifying through the obedience of the children that the parents are submitted to Jesus' direction to protect these children. And when society sees dads, fathers, as encouragers of their children, not just disciplinarians, when they see fathers encouraging their children, these fathers testify to the world that Christ is patient. Christ is loving. Christ is working in a way that is for our good to turn us in correction to obedience. The fathers display this in their duties as they encourage their children faithfully. And society sees this. And this is different than the world. The world doesn't discipline like this. The world disciplines children to get them out of the way. Christian dads discipline their children to bring them to Christ, to lead them to Jesus. This makes a deep impact on our society. And it moves even out of the family and into the world. And the society will see how you live as an employee. They'll see that you sincerely serve your boss 
as a testimony to Christ's authority over your life. And it even moves into those who actually are masters or employers. Society will see a Christian employer justly reward and justly discipline their employees. Showing that Christ is ruling their business. That they're more concerned about loving their employees than making another dollar. When the world sees the church lived out practically, Christ is glorified and the church is able to benefit the world practically. These qualities that we see here listed that we're called to walk in here in Colossians, all chapter 3, these are rare qualities today in our society. And if if Christ-like qualities are going to be seen in this society we live in, this sin-sick society, selfish society, the only way this is going to happen is if we do what it says in verses 15 and 16. We focus on the cross where peace came to us through Christ. And we focus on the Word. We dwell in the Word, the truth. And it will change our hearts. If we let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts richly, we will be spirit-filled, spirit-controlled, dominated. We'll look at the world differently. And, And that's really where Paul's going from verse 15 down into verse 17 and then 18 through the end of chapter, or the beginning of chapter 4. The Apostle Paul's progression of thought is is that if the word is richly dwelling in you, then everything you do will be done for the glory of Jesus' name, including the things you do as a wife, as a husband, as a father, as an employee, an employer, all these things will be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for his praise. Look at verse 17. In 3.17, he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, in word or deed, word or deed pretty much covers all of your life, right? What you say usually is what comes out of your heart. So whatever you have in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. And so whatever you say with your mouth, it needs, to, it needs to give praise to Christ. And whatever you do with your hands, the deeds you do, the things you do with your life, they need to be done in a way that would bring glory to Christ, giving thanks to God through, through Him. Whatever we do should be done, understand this, it should be done under Christ's authority. You belong to Jesus. You are not your own. You were purchased with a price, the precious blood of Christ, our Master, our Lord. Everything you do in word or deed should be done under Jesus' lordship. His, His guidance, His directives, every sphere of life is under His dominion. That's what verse 17 means. Everything you do, there is nothing insignificant, nothing outside of Christ's rulership in your life. There is no such thing as secular and sacred for the Christian. Everything we do should be sacred. Unto God. Every inch of creation, or our lives in particular, belong to Jesus' direction. He sustains us. He has the right to direct us. And if our hearts, according to what it says here in 315 and 16, if our hearts are ruled by the peace of Christ and guided by his word, that will show up in our lives. It will be evident in verse 17 in our words and our deeds. We'll react to every situation and every relationship in life in such a way that we would want to bring glory to Jesus' name. That's why we must be dwelling in the Word, I think, constantly and thankfully. 
That desire isn't cultivated in a vacuum. It's cultivated in the word. You have to be in the word. You have to look into the the glorious truth about Christ in order to, to live it out with joy in every area of your life. When we, when we talked about this last time, letting the word of Christ richly dwell in us, we compared that text to Ephesians where he talked about the Holy Spirit dominating us, being filled with the Spirit. And if we're filled with the word or the Spirit, we'll be seeking to do all these things for the glory of Christ's name. But if you're not filled with the word, this will not dominate your words and deeds. Your words and deeds will become carnal. That's why as a Christian, we are to continually feed on the truth. We need to be nourished and washed in it daily. If we do so, we'll desire to magnify Christ practically in all these areas of our life that Paul mentions here. In 317, what Paul does is he begins with what I would consider a a general command, right? It's pretty general. Whatever you do, word or deed, do all these things In the name of the Lord Jesus. But he moves really quickly from the general command into the particulars of how we are to put on Christ-like qualities in our lives practically. We see that there in 18-4-1 as I mentioned. He's showing us, I think in this text, what the word of Christ dwelling in us should look like practically. And this will be my outline here for you this morning. In this text, we're going to see... That Christ-like qualities should be practically manifest in our, number one, marital relationships. Christ-like qualities should be practically manifest in our marital relationships. And secondly, in our parental relationships. And thirdly, in our vocational relationships. Very simple, very clear text. Christ-like qualities should be practically manifest in our marriages, in our parenting, and in our vocation in life. Every sphere of influence in our lives should be used to exalt Christ. That's the point. Every area, whatever you do, whenever you do it, wherever you do it, should be done to exalt the name of Christ. And by exalting the name of Christ, I simply mean this. By exhibiting to the world that Jesus is your Lord, he directs your actions, your motives, your attitudes at home and at work. That's really, I think, what Paul is getting at. The Colossian heretics did not have a Jesus that dwelt in them, that dominated their hearts out of joy. They had a Jesus that would only work through their legalism, only work through their ritualism. And Paul's saying the, the living Christ, the Lord, the resurrected one, the one who rescued you, he is now dominating you in every area of your life, and it will show up. You'll put on Christ like qualities in your marriage, in your parenting, in your vocation. Verses 18 to 19, we begin to see the first point. Here we learn that our marriage relationships should manifest Christ-exalting actions. Christ-exalting actions. Look what it says in verse 18. I'll read that first. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The key to that, ladies, is this. Do this as is fitting in the Lord, the Lord Jesus, in his directives, in his will, in his word. Do this. You, you act 
based on the fact that you are in Christ under his authority. He made you a wife. He gave you a husband. He is now leading you. He led you to a place of protection to this husband. Now you are to submit to the husband because ultimately you're submitting to Christ, the Lord who gave you this man in your life. Verse 18 describes how the word of Christ should, I think, be manifest in a wife's marital actions. If the word of Christ is dwelling in you, ladies, if you are soaking up the word, if you're looking into the perfect law of God, if you're soaking up scripture daily like a like a water fountain, you're drinking from it constantly, you will not have a problem with submitting to the man that God put over you as your husband. It'll be manifest. Your submission won't be done with a a, a grudgeful attitude. It'll be done as unto the Lord, who is your true protector and provider and gave you this husband to be the delegated authority in your life. But Christ is the final authority over your life. If you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, I think what Paul's saying is in verse 16 down to verse 18 is if this is going on in your hearts, ladies, you will submit to your husband because this is fitting as one who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his will for your life. Submission is not a dirty word. The church submits to the Lord Jesus Christ and he protects us. He bears our burdens. He guards us. That's what a husband is to do for the wife. Submission is, is, is a beautiful thing when you think about it from a Christian perspective. Christ submitted himself to the cross to take our place. Our burdens fell on him so that his bride would not have to bear that load. And that's what a husband, a godly husband does for a a godly wife. He will bear the burden and the submission would be a joy for the godly woman. In verse 18, this comes to you, this command comes to you, ladies, as you're dwelling in the word. And as you read this, here's what I hope you do as as wives this morning. I I pray when you read this, you ask yourselves a question or two. (laughs) Ask yourselves, do you as wives joyfully submit to your role in marriage? Now, who, who made you a wife? God ultimately made you a wife. Do you joyfully submit to God's authority over you that placed you in a marriage? And if if you joyfully submit to your role in marriage, ask yourself this. How does that show up through your actions in relation to your husband? How does your joyful submission show up? You know, are you asked to do something by your husband and you say, yeah, okay, whatever, and you do it? That's not joyful submission. Are you seeing a need in the family? seeing a place where your husband's struggling, and he says, I don't know what to do. I'm going to have to let you do this. I can't handle this. And you say, husband, I want to do this. I want to help you in this. Let me do it. Let me me take care of this situation for you. And you do that because ultimately you know that God has given you this man, and he is guarding you, and he is protecting you, and there are some things that he just can't do on his own, and he needs your help. That's joyful submission. That, that kind of submission, it, it magnifies Christ's submission when he came to earth to die in our place, to live our life. 
He came because of our neediness and submitted himself to the Father's will because our neediness screamed out, we can't do it on our own. And he came and he submitted himself to the church, to the church, to become our sacrifice. But he was willing to do that. And women that do that will also magnify that kind of attitude through their submission. Wives, your your actions in marriage need to think about this. They always need to be directed by this. Will it magnify Christ? Are, Are your actions in your marriage in submission, are they directed by God's word, by his will? Verse 18 says, let a wife submit. Right? Submit to, her, to their own husbands, is what Paul would say in other places, but submit to your husband. And that word submit is a hard word today. We know it is in our culture. And here's what it means in the Greek. Let a wife get in rank under God's direction. God is the one who directs the role of a man and a woman in marriage. And he's saying, let a wife get in rank as is fitting in the Lord under God's direction and protection. Let her submit to God's direction and protection by getting in line with what he wants for her, what's best for her. Ladies, when when God calls you to be a wife, that's what he's calling for. He's calling you to joyfully submit to his direction and his loving leadership through your husband that he places over you. I actually incorporate that into my wedding vows when I do a wedding for someone. This is the, the, the wife's vow is, do you confess this morning to all those here that you will joyfully submit to God's direction through your husband that he places over you? In verse 18, submission, the word submission here is not focused on the man. It's focused on God. You focus on the man too much, and you miss the point. He's saying, submit as is fitting in the Lord to the man that God gave you. Your submission is as unto God. It's focused on God. That kind of submission glorifies Christ. It does so by by displaying, ladies, it displays a trust in God's plan and provision for you in this husband. You're submitting to God's will. You're you're trusting that God knows what's best for you when you submit like this. And a wife who submits as is fitting in the Lord reveals the lordship of Christ in her heart. And it shows up through her willful actions in spite of her husband's shortcomings, right? We have a lot of shortcomings. My wife submits to me in ways that I just can't even imagine at times because I know how fraught I am with problems. With, with failures, with instability. Yet she, she listens to me. Sometimes she does what I say, and, and I, I step back and I think, I can't believe she just submitted to that because I'm probably wrong. Yet she did so as unto the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. And knowing that I'm responsible if I fail, not her, which is the, the burden is lifted for her. And I'm gladly bearing that. But she is trusting in ultimately God's provision through her husband. That's what it means to do this willfully as is fitting in the Lord. That kind of submission, ladies, is based on knowing that the Lord has ordained the roles of men and women. And that God has placed a husband over the wife as her leader for her good and for her protection. 
You don't know that, though, unless you're in the Word of God and letting it richly dwell in you. Let me say this. You may know that, but if you're not focusing on that, the world is focusing on a whole lot of other views of male leadership that will distort your understanding and discourage your submission. Understand that God's revelation of a man's role and a woman's role is God's favor to us. It's his blessing to us so that we know what's best in this life. What we need to understand is if we look at this, if, if you submit, ladies, to your husbands willfully, joyfully, it magnifies Christ and your trust in God's will and his word. But contrary to that, a lack of submission to your husband is actually an act of disrespect to God, not just to the man. A lack of submission in a, in a wife's role is an attack on God's will for you. And it'll bring about horrible consequences in your marriage. A lack of godly submission will bring in disunity into a marriage. It'll bring in heartache in the home. When a woman puts her foot down and says, I will not... She's saying that ultimately to God, not to her husband. When that happens, great division comes into the family. But if that's true, it's also true that when husbands abuse their roles as leaders, great heartache and disunity comes into the church and to the home. Heartache follows if a husband abuses his role as a leader and becomes a dominator, a dictator not a protector. The husband's role is a delegated role. It's a delegated authority. It's not his own authority. And so if it's a delegated authority from God, then it must be guided by God's word. So he must be also dwelling in the word, ladies, not just you. He needs to be dwelling in the word so that his actions will manifest Christ's love and leadership in the home. That's what verse 19 goes on to say in Colossians 3. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this verse tells us how the the word of Christ is to be manifest in the husband's actions, in his words. How the word of Christ is manifest comes out of our mouth. Now, when we read verse 19, you may think, I would never say this. I would never do this. But he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And everybody sort of gravitates toward this idea of, well, I do love my wife. I tolerate her. That's not love. Toleration is not love. Love is an action, an intentional act of the will that's sacrificial. But you also may think when you read this verse, I am not harsh. I don't abuse my wife. Well, you may be surprised at how abusive you are, guys, how abusive we are. The text says, men, don't be harsh. That means don't be bitter. It's the, the Greek meaning of this word is bitter. Don't be bitter with your wives. It also means don't be impatient with your wives. It also means, in the context, men, don't be thoughtless with your words. Now, when you, when you sum it up that way, all of us fall into that category as those who are guilty of breaking this command. All the men in this room have been guilty of being harsh toward our wives. We have been bitter toward them. We have been impatient with them. We have used thoughtless 
words to hurt them. And if, if you're doing that, and if you've done that, just think about what a lousy picture of Christ that is. We need to understand something, guys, in particular. Harsh words towards our wives hurt them deeply, and it wrecks biblical and marital unity. Hard words go into their heart, and they don't come out very easily. They go down deep, and they wedge themselves between you and them. And think about this, guys. If you've been impatient with your wife, if you've used bitter terms toward her, treated her bitterly, used thoughtless words toward her, think about this. Would you let any other man do that to your wife? What would you do? If you, I tell you what, you, what would happen. If you did that to my wife in my presence, Nate would have to talk to me about sanctification afterwards. Because I would stop you from saying those things about my wife. I would stop you immediately, however it took. But yet, men, we turn right around and we do the same things that we wouldn't let other men do to our own wives. That doesn't magnify Christ. Husbands, love your wives, actively seeking their good, actively doing for them what they need by not tearing them down, by using harsh terms with them. Men, understand something, and I know, you don't, I know you know this. Let me remind you of this. We as husbands are called by God to represent Christ's love for his bride, the church. Let that sanctify your relationship with your wife. Is Christ a harsh and bitter, impatient, thoughtless protector? Then we shouldn't be either. We're called to love like Christ loves. We're called to love with patience and with sacrifice. Husbands should cherish and protect their wives by loving them sacrificially, and I would say patiently. The reason the word bitter is there or harsh is there is, is that we're not patient with our wives. We get fed up and we just blow up at them like, come on, get on track, get in rank, woman. We use that kind of terminology, and it hurts them deeply. We're not exhibiting patience or we're not exhibiting a sacrificial heart that says, you know what? I need to wait through this. I need to help you to see this biblically. I need to do this patiently, though. I need to let her talk. And, and ladies, you love to talk. And men, it's hard to listen, isn't it? It is. Maybe it's just me. It's hard. Not that our wives are interesting. It's just that they want to talk about the situation. They want to analyze the situation. They don't want to always hear your immediate fix, which is what I'm prone to do before she even gets finished with the first sentence. They need to know that we're listening patiently and that we cherish their thoughts. We're called to emulate Christ's love for his church, guys. Christ loves his bride sacrificially. He gave himself up for it, for us. Christ patiently loves his bride. He constantly cleanses her with the washing of the word. Husbands, we're called to manifest that kind of love toward our wives. That kind of action should be evident in our life. It should put Christ on display in our marriage. So I'm going to ask you guys a few questions, you men a few questions, and these are questions that are for men, so you must be able to bear this burden. 
I must be able to bear this burden. Husbands, are you joyfully or bitterly leading your wife through your actions? Or better yet, how would she perceive your actions? Are they done joyfully or bitterly? Does does she think that you are bitter or thankful for your role that God has given you as the husband and protector of her life? Are you actively, thankfully, sacrificially, patiently leading her in prayer practically? Are you leading family devotions? Here's one that's even harder. Are you working in your secular job without complaining so that she doesn't feel the burden for you having to work so hard in a lousy situation? Listen, guys, here's the good news as Christians. We may not be doing all these things, but it's never too late to start. We let this text wash over us, church, in such a way that it would move us in the river of God's love toward action toward repentance. Let the text wash over you and move you to act, guys, in repentance if you're not joyfully leading your wife through your loving actions, your sacrifice, your your patience. Now go with me back to uh, Colossians 3, 20. I want to move to 20 and 21 here. Here the Apostle Paul moves us from how how Christ's word is manifest in, in our marriage relationships to how Christ's word is manifest in our parenting relationships practically. This this is a natural progression, right? makes sense. He deals with the wives and the husbands, and then naturally, normally, they have kids. Not always, but in most cases. So he moves from mom, dad, right, to kids, wives, husbands, children. In verses 20 to 22, or 21 rather, the second point is we, we learn that our parenting relationships should manifest Christ-exalting directions, not just actions, but directions. Now, when I read this verse in a moment, sometimes we've read this, sometimes I've read this, and I thought, this is focused on kids, and we need to pound this in our kids' head so that they would know how important it is for them to obey us. And actually, after studying this in context, I know he's addressing children. He's, he's talking about children, though, more than he's addressing children. He's talking about what children ought to do in relation to what the parents are doing, though. Our parenting relationship should be manifest through the way our kids react to our directions. Okay? Look what it says in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. Now, he means everything that's not unbiblical, okay? We know that. He said, do this, for this pleases the Lord. Now, my question automatically comes into my mind, and the question is this. Most of our kids, especially young children, aren't even believers, so how can we impose this this Christ-empowered command on unbelieving kids? And that's my dilemma as I think through this text. Now, it's a principle that if our kids obey Everything goes well with them. It's, it's generally a, a truth that we can stick to, right? Um, and it pleases God when kids obey. But, but the weight of this seems to be more on the parents than on the children in this text. He's addressing children, and he's, he, in particular, he uses a Greek word that makes us understand. He's talking about offspring that still live under the care of their parents. Okay? 
still under the parents' care. These children are commanded to obey the parents that God placed over them. So again, when I think about this, I think, how, how do they learn to do this? How do they learn to submit and to love their parents' direction in everything? And how is that pleasing to the Lord? I think the answer is found in verses 18 and 19. How do children learn to obey as is fitting in the Lord? How do children learn to love their parents as is fitting in the Lord? Because it pleases him. How do they learn these kinds of things? How do children learn that it's good to obey their mom and dad and it pleases God? How do they know that? I think the answer there is in 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Submission and love that's exercised, modeled by the parents out of a desire to honor Christ, I believe becomes the model for children to follow. And that is what I believe pleases the Lord. When children see their parents doing what it says is 18 and 19, when they see that, they should desire to obey them. And that is pleasing to the Lord. This this example, I believe, of 18 and 19 goes a long way in cultivating a God-pleasing reaction in our kids to our directions. Children see what's going on between mom and dad. Children are looking to you to model Christ to them. Why, why obey mom and dad when mom and dad, mom and dad don't even obey God? This is the child's reasoning. But when you remove that from their argument, why do I obey mom and dad? Well, because mom and dad seem to joyfully and sacrificially and willfully submit to God. And, and God seems to give them wisdom and love for each other. And maybe I should listen to that. Maybe this would be good for me. Children who see mom put on what it says there in verse 18, put on joyful submission to God's call in her life. And and they see dad put on sacrificial love for God who called him to protect his wife. Those children can trust and those kinds of parents. When our kids see us put on Christ, they can learn to trust our advice, our directions, because they see Christ-like love manifest in our actions. You know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, I, 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 when you parent, you know, I tell my kids certain things. You know, you tell them, your 16-year-old, don't run a stop sign, right? And then he rides with you, and you run the stop sign. And what's the first thing he does? Dad, you just ran that stop sign. I know, but it's a special circumstance. I'm in a hurry. I'm late for church, Right? I mean, you know, it's something like that. And all of a sudden, the hypocrisy is just screaming out, right? But if I'm telling my child consistently, faithfully, don't do these things or do these things, and then I actually don't do those things and I actually do these things, then my child can learn that he can trust me when I say, don't do those things or go do these things. They see a consistency in our parenting That pleases the Lord. Notice there in 321. Something very important. But before I get to that. Let me say this. If you're modeling. 18 and 19 to your children. I I believe that that will lead to. Evangelistic interactions. With your children. 
If you're modeling this, I think it'll lead to these kinds of conversations that allow you to explain and define your motives for serving your bride or submitting to your groom. And it'll also help you to talk to them about why you correct them for the glory of God. I think when they see that God reigns over your relationship as husband and wife, and then you come to them and you say, this is what the consistency of my life looks like. I'm trying and I'm seeking and I'm longing to do these things in my marriage relationship. So when I come to you, I want to protect you too by correcting you and guiding you. And here's why. I want to see you rescued from your sin. And the path you're on is leading to destruction. And the rod of reproof will drive you drive you far from that sin. So I need to correct you. And here's why I do it. I think as you model this godly lifestyle between a husband and wife, the kids begin to trust that you have a a, a different motive for correcting them other than just shut up and get behind me, kid. They know there's something going on that you're trying to convey to them. And you need to be faithful to do that as well when you do correct your children. You need to cultivate Christ-like qualities and... Christ-like conversations. But here, as you go into 321, we begin to see that the Apostle Paul is going to elaborate on how to parent our children. He elaborates on who is most responsible for cultivating Christ-like qualities in the parenting relationship. The responsibility, he's going to tell us right here very clearly, the responsibility of training our kids to obey is put squarely in the hands of the Father. God ordained male leaders, primarily fathers, to honor women and guide children. But again, if it's the primary means, there sometimes are circumstances that don't allow for a man to be in the picture, or at least a father. So when a man is absent in that sense, a dad is absent, other male leaders need to step in because it's still their responsibility to serve this wife and teach this child, whether it's grandpa, uncle, cousin, friend, pastor. Because that is God's normative means of training children. It's through their male leader guiding them to honor women and follow God's directions. Before I read the verse here, let me just address the dads this morning directly. And I'm, I'm in this boat with you guys. Um, dads, I want you to ask yourself something this morning. Do you evaluate your actions faithfully, according to God's word, toward your wife and your kids? Do you, do you evaluate your actions at home? Do you evaluate your words toward your wife and your kids? Do you evaluate your attitude in your parenting, dads? More, more specifically, and this is where it gets to be the hot seat for us as dads, okay? Guys, do you provoke your wife using harsh words in front of your kids? If you do, so will your kids. They will follow your example. Dads, do you defend your wife's honor immediately? When your children show her disrespect, if you don't, that will be the pattern of their life. But if you do, they'll learn that this kind of disrespect is unacceptable in God's sight. It will not happen. 
Dads, do you, do you honor your wife's needs above your own? Are you willfully doing this in front of your kids, acknowledging that you want to serve her, you want to care for her, you want to guard her honor, you want to protect her purity, you want to do all these things to help her? Are you doing that in front of your kids? Because if you are, guess what? They'll want to do that too. God put you there to be a godly, Christ-exalting influence in their life. And when they want to ask you about why you're doing it, then you're an evangelistic influence in their life. Here's why I guard mom's honor. Here's why I guard you from disrespecting her. God has made her your mother. She has been given to you as your protector, your nourisher. And she is worthy of honor because of the role that God's placed her in over you. Do not disrespect God who gave you this woman to care for you. Guys, the reason I bring that up is just it's just plain and simple. These are practical things that we fall short of. And we fall into at times in, in the negative sense. And we need to remember that our actions as fathers will teach our kids volumes about what it means to please the Lord. When our kids talk back to mom or disrespect authority figures, or live in constant rebellion. I believe this text tells us, in some sense, that there may be a problem with biblical male direction in that child's life. Look what it says. Fathers, verse 21, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. There are two ways to provoke your children, and one's a really direct way. We'll talk about it in a few moments. But the other one is, By not guiding them, you leave them to themselves and they will run astray. They will disrespect their mom, talk back to her. They will disrespect authority figures. They will live in constant rebellion because of your lack of intervention. There's two ways to provoke your children to discouragement. That's one. The other one is using your role as their father in a harsh manner, in a hurtful manner. Both of these ways of doing this, I believe, leads us back to an ungodly, unchristlike example of what it means to be a father. We are not only representing Christ, guys, but as a father, you're representing our Heavenly Father as well and His nature and how we deal with our children. And many times when our kids react sinfully, we can, we can follow that pattern back primarily to a father's neglect or mishandling of his duty to model Christ-like sacrifice and care for his family. Why does this happen? I don't want to deal with the kids right now. That will provoke my children to anger later on. They'll be discouraged. They'll be mad. I just don't want to deal with them. They're in my hair. They're, they're out. Just go away. Guys, we've all been there. Maybe we haven't said it that way, but we've been there. And we need to remember something. Our kids will react to our stewardship, positively or negatively. If we don't steward them biblically, they'll react with rebellion, disrespect, dishonor, and even discouragement. Now, I can't put all the blame on the fathers because children are responsible for their own sins. But if our kids don't see dads who patiently encourage and model Christ-likeness, 
those kids will never trust the very man that God placed over them to protect them. We want our kids to trust us. We, we want our kids to know that when we correct them, it's not just to get them out of our hair, just to be done with them. We want our kids to know that our correction should lead to evangelization of their souls. Not just get them out of my way so I can do my thing. And maybe I'm just talking to myself this morning. That's okay. Um, I need to hear this. I fall into this. Um, I've been woefully guilty of verse 21, provoking my children to discouragement. If we're not, if we're not doing what we're called to do, by letting the word of Christ richly dwell in us and the peace of Christ rule our hearts so that it affects every area of our life, we won't come to this verse positively in verse 21. We'll come to it seeing that the result of our lack of dwelling in the word and letting Christ rule our hearts shows up in the way we provoke our children and discourage them. If we're not intentionally putting on Christ-likeness in our correction, it will lead to what we see in verse 21, Paul says, provoking our children to despair. New American Standard says exasperating our children. Exasperate. I mean, guys, guys, let me tell you what this means. It means to break the spirit. To break the spirit. It's sort of the idea of what you do when you have a pony. He's about ready to be, you know, broke. And he's wild and happy and free. And all of a sudden, some guy gets on there and breaks him and wears him down to nothing. He's a sweaty mess of hair and hoofs. And he just follows you around like a little broken down puppy. After it's all said and done, that's to break the spirit. Fathers, do not break the child's spirit to produce despair and give no hope. That's his point. Dads, we we can't do this. We must never do this. We must never use our correction to provoke our children. That's, That's really the heart of this. And I mean, don't use your correction or lack of correction to provoke your children. It's easily done if we just continually find other things to do than address the issues in our kid's life. You can provoke them to despair because you don't care about them. At least that's the way they perceive it. We should always remember that our words and our correction should be Christ-exalting. It should lead our children to a faithful view of God, our Heavenly Father, by the way we father them. Listen, guys, heavy-handed correction, disparaging words, Constant ridicule and a lack of encouragement will cause our kids to live without hope and grace. And what will that look like? They will be broken people. They will be depressed people. They will be sullen and they will be a distant spirit from you. They will be gone before they leave your house. Guys, we need to pray for grace that this will not happen in our families. Dads, if we're, if we're going to correct them, we need to understand something. That's godly, and that's good, and it should be Christ-exalting and evangelistic, all right? We must correct, but we must never crush our children's spirit in the correction. We must direct them to God for forgiveness and grace to overcome their failures. We must remember that, that we are called as dads to emulate God the Father's great love. He is full of loving kindness and patience and love and hope. And dads, if if we want to teach this to our kids, and we want to teach them to understand the grace, the favor of obedience, then we need to put on Christ-like qualities when we correct them for their sinfulness. 
I'm going to suggest to you how you can do that, okay? I'm suggesting ways that I need to do that to you, okay? Don't just come down on your kids when they do wrong or do dumb things. Instead, intentionally spend time shepherding their hearts and modeling your need of God's grace daily to them personally. You need to be confessing your failures to them and confessing how you need God's grace in your life actively. And you can't do that just by, come in here and let me spank you and get it over with today. Go away now. I'm done. You have to spend time shepherding them. A shepherd spends time with the sheep. He smells like the sheep. When was the last time you smelt like your kids? You hung around them so much and you shared the gospel with them so much and you talked to them about the reason for discipline, the reason for correction, the reason for obedience to magnify Christ, to exalt God's name. When was the last time you really spent time, dedicated time to your kids doing that? If you do, it'll make a difference in your parenting. You won't provoke them to despair. You'll provoke them to encouragement. You also need to not, not just simply negatively not come down on them. You also need to define, I think, define why you are correcting them. Define why you are calling them to obedience. And listen, guys, I know we all say it. Just do it because I said to do it. Maybe we can get away with that. But in reality, guys, they need to know why we're saying do it. Do it. Because I'm your dad and I said it. Because God's placed me over you to protect you and guide you and love you. That's why you do it. Don't just do it because I said do it. Do it because you know who I am in your life by God's grace. I'm your protector. I'm your leader. I'm your guide to Christ. We need to call them to obedience. I think by communicating the gospel to them when they fail to obey. Just like we fail to obey Christ. That will encourage them. That will cultivate a desire in them to honor their fathers and their mothers and to obey. They'll no longer be constantly discouraged and distant from us when they see that we will lay down our lives for their sake. They will listen to our correction. They may not understand the spiritual implications. That's up to God. But our command as fathers is to, I think in the positive sense, provoke them to encouragement by living consistently with what we are soaking up in God's word. Now, let me just conclude here quickly in Colossians 3. Moving quickly from how Christ's word should be manifest in our families, we move into how Christ's word should be manifest in our vocations in 3.22 to 4.1. Let me read this quickly. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven." In this, in this passage, thirdly, we learn that the vocational relationships we have should manifest Christ-exalting, not just actions and directions, but dedication. Christ-exalting dedication. Now, I'm just going to make this real simple and short. 
because I think you're probably familiar with this text, and, and I'm glad you are, but he says there in verses 22 to 25, Christian employees, if you will. It says that they are to obey, and that simply means work, okay, in this context. Christian employees work as for the Lord, your true master and provider. All right, you you don't get that if you're a slave and you're not dwelling in the word. You don't get the goodness of God in your master's rulership over you unless you're dwelling in the word, knowing that I have a master who's greater than the man who's over me. And he is sovereign. And I'm here by providence. There's a reason for this enslavement, this occupation, this job. And I need to recognize that though my earthly master may may beat me and treat me cruelly, I have a master in heaven who says, this is good for you at this time. I'll take care of you. And I will trust in my true master and provider. And I will do this work, as he says there, you do this not just for your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but notice, with sincerity, do it with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord, he is the master you are to respect and reverence. Do this work for the Lord heartily, whether your boss sees you do it or not, whether your boss is nice or he's cruel. Do this out of gratefulness to God who's given you this job, this opportunity to magnify his grace and his love in this situation. The same God who gave you the ability to do these duties. I think it's interesting the way he puts this here in verse 23. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. Notice, you are serving the Lord Christ. You are a witness of Christ in your job, in your vocation, in this relationship you have with your employers. They need to see Christ in your faithful and hearty labors. They need to see that there's something about you that's different than all those other people around you that causes you to continue working hard when they're being mistreated by the boss, by circumstances. And again, I think it goes back to that this would be an opportunity for them to see this and come to you and say, tell me, tell me about this hope that you must have that's inside of you. That causes you to keep coming back here and keep serving so faithfully when you're treated so harshly. Why do you do this? Well, then you can give them an answer for the hope that lies within you. You can tell them because Christ is ultimately my master. You may think you're my master, but ultimately I work for Jesus. My service is done as unto him. I want my labors to magnify him who gave me this strength and ability and placed me here under his authority. And then Paul, Paul says, that's what I, I see needs to happen here as you dwell on the word. And then also he goes on to say that that needs to happen not only as you're, you're serving, but also as you are one who has mastery over others, one who is an employer. In verse 4.1 he says, Christian masters, employers, you need to pay attention to who you really serve. Fear your master who is in heaven. And if you do that, if you're an employer, you're going to treat your employees in light of how God's treated you personally. Right? Does God discipline you when you do wrong? He does because he loves you. That means that you as an employer will justly punish those who do wrong that work for you. Not with vengeance, not with ulterior motives, 
You'll punish laziness. You'll discipline it justly, fairly. But it also means that if you keep in mind who your heavenly master is, you will also graciously reward those who are faithful to you in your employment. You will care for them. You will serve them. You'll give them things that they have earned. You'll recognize their abilities. You'll acknowledge their duties and what they've done to help the company. And the point of all this is, I'm going to conclude here, but the point of all this is, is this. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whether you're a slave, a master, a parent, a husband, a wife, all these areas of your life are intended by God to magnify Christ and his lordship over you in whatever role you're called into. Church, that's what the whole point of Colossians is about. Colossians is a, is a Christocentric book. It's about Christ being exalted as supreme. And for us as Christians to say that Jesus is our Lord and we go to our work and we work like the world, we deny the lordship of Christ practically like an atheist. Same goes for our parenting. Same goes for our marital relationships. If Jesus is doesn't have dominion over every area of your life, you need to repent this morning and seek his face. Your purpose in life is to make much of Christ. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're called into. This morning, pray that, pray that that happens. Pray that our theology about Jesus will show up in every area of our life for his praise and for the good of our society. Heavenly Father, today is a day of remembrance. We come to your word, reading familiar text, but confess that we, we need this reminder. We need to be washed in your instructions, though sometimes they are hard to hear. Sometimes they are hard to digest and apply. But today we are calling on you to to feed us, to, to break stony hearts, to grant repentance, to help us exalt Christ as wives and husbands and children and as parents, as employees and employers. Lord, we want the supremacy of Christ to be, to be magnified through your church and the way we live practically in the world. So God, I call upon you in Christ's name. And ask you to sanctify us. Set us apart so that we would make much of Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.